Section 27 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. Section 27. Chapter 8, Part 2. By Norman H. Baines. Here in the following year, 374, so far as we can judge from the vague chronology of our authorities, a widespread conspiracy was discovered, in which Maximus, Julian's master, Eutropius, the historian, and many other leading philosophers and heathens were implicated. Anxious to discover who was to succeed Valens, some daring spirits had suspended a ring over a consecrated table upon which was placed a round metal dish. About the rim of the dish was engraved the alphabet. The ring had spelt out the letters Theo, when with one voice all present exclaimed that Theodorus was clearly destined for empire. Born in Gaul of an old and honourable family, he had enjoyed a liberal education and already held the second place among the imperial notaries. Distinguished for his humanity and moderation, in every post alike, his merits outshone his office. Absent from Antioch at the time, he was at once recalled, and the enthusiasm of his friends seemed to have shaken his loyalty. The life of Valens had previously been threatened by would-be assassins, and when the conspirator's secret was betrayed, the emperor's vengeance knew no bounds. He swept the whole of the Roman East for victims, and as at the fall of Procopius, so now his avarice ruled unchecked. If the accused life was spared, proscription in bitter mockery posed as clemency, and the banishment of the innocent as an act of royal grace. For years the trials continued. We all crept about as though in Sumerian darkness, writes an eyewitness. The story of Damocles hung suspended over our heads. Of Western affairs during those years, when the long-drawn game of plot and counterplot was being played between Valence and Sapor, we know but little. Valentinian remained in Gaul, autumn 371 to spring 373, doubtless busied with his schemes for the maintenance of security upon the frontiers, but detailed information we have none. Where Valentinian governed in person, we hear of no rebellions. The constitutions even show that a limited relief was granted from taxation and that measures were taken to check oppression. But elsewhere, on every hand, the emperor's good intentions were betrayed by his agents. In Britain, a disorganised army and a harassed population could offer no effective resistance to the invader. Gross misgovernment in the Pannonian provinces made it doubtful whether the excesses of imperial offices or the forays of the barbarian enemy were more to be dreaded, while the story of the woes of Africa only serves to show how terrible was the cost which the empire paid for its unscrupulous bureaucracy. Under Jovian, 363-4, the Ostoriana had suddenly invaded the province of Tripolis, 
intending to avenge the death of one of their tribesmen, who had been burned alive for plotting against the Roman power. They laid waste to the rich countryside around Leptis, and when the city appealed for help to the commander-in-chief, Count Romanus, he refused to take any action unless supplied with a vast store of provisions and 4,000 camels. The demand could not be met, and after 40 days the general departed, while the despairing provincials at the regular annual assembly of their city council elected an embassy to carry statues of victory to Valentinian and to greet him upon his accession. At Milan, 364 to 5, the ambassadors gave, as it would seem, a full report of the sufferings of Leptis, but Remigius, the Magister Officiorum, a relative and confederate of Romanus, was forewarned and contradicted their assertions. While he was successful in securing the appointment of Romanus upon the commission of inquiry, which was ordered by the emperor, the military command was given for a time to the governor Rauritius, but was shortly after once more put into the hands of Romanus. It was not long before news of a fresh invasion of Tripolis by the barbarians reached Valentinian in Gaul, A.D. 365. The African army had not yet received the customary donative upon the emperor's accession. Palladius was accordingly entrusted with gold to distribute amongst the troops and was instructed to hold a complete and searching inquiry into the affairs of the province. Meanwhile, for the third time, the desert clansmen had spread rapine and outrage through Roman territory, and for eight days had laid formal siege to the city of Leptis itself. A second embassy consisting of Jovinus and Pancratius was sent to the emperor, who was found at Trier, winter 367. On the arrival of Palladius in Africa, Romanus induced the officers to relinquish their share of the donative and to restore it to the imperial commissioner as a mark of their personal respect. The enquiry then proceeded. Much evidence was taken and the complaints against Romanus proved up to the hilt. The report for the emperor was already prepared when the count threatened, if it were not withdrawn, to disclose the personal profit of Palladius in the matter of the donative. The commissioner yielded and went over to the side of Romanus. On his return to the court, he found nothing to criticise in the administration of the province. Pancratius had died at Trier, but Jovinus was sent back to Africa with Palladius, the latter being directed to hold a further examination as to the truth of the allegations made by the second embassy. Men who on the showing of the emperor's representative had given false witness on the inquiry, were to have their tongues cut from their mouths. By threats, trickery and bribes, Romanus once more achieved his end. The citizens of Leptis denied that they had ever given any authority to Jovinus to act on their behalf, while he, endeavouring to save his life, was forced to confess himself a liar. It was to no purpose. Together with Ruritius, the governor and others, he was put to death by order of the emperor, 369. 
Not even this sacrifice of innocent lives gave peace to Africa. Firmus, a Moorish prince, on the death of his father Nebule, had slain his brother. That brother, however, had enjoyed the favour of Romanus, and the machinations of the Roman general drove Firmus into rebellion. He assumed the purple, while persecuted Donatus and exasperated soldiers and provincials gladly rallied round him. Theodosius, fresh from his successes in Britain and Gaul, was dispatched to Africa by Valentinian as commander-in-chief, charged with the task of reasserting imperial authority. On examining his predecessor's papers, a chance reference caused the discovery of the plots of the last eight years, but it was not till the reign of Gratian that the subsequent inquiries were concluded. Palladius and Remigius both committed suicide, but the arch-offender Romanus was protected by the influence of Merobordes. The whole story needs no comment. Before men's eyes, the powerlessness of the emperor and the might of organised corruption stood luridly revealed. For at least two years, Theodosius fought and struggled against odds in Africa. At length, discipline was restored amongst the troops. The Moors were defeated with great loss and the usurper driven to take his own life. The Roman commander entered Sitifis in triumph, 374. Hardly, however, was his master Valentinian removed by death when Theodosius fell a victim to the intrigues of his enemies at Carthage, AD 375-6. to Baptised at the last hour and thus cleansed of all sin, he walked calmly to the block. We do not know the ostensible charge upon which he was beheaded, nor do our authorities name his accuser. But the evidence points to Merobordes, the all-powerful minister of Gratian. Theodosius had suspended Romanus and disclosed his schemes, and Romanus was the friend and protégé of Merobordes. While it is clear that Gratian held in his own hands the entire West, including Africa, for as yet, 376, the youthful Valentinian II was not permitted to exercise any independent authority. Possibly Merobordes may have been assisted in the attainment of his ends by timely representations from the East, for the general's name began with the same letters which had only recently. 374, proved fatal to Theodorus. In 373, Valentinian had left Gaul for Milan, but returned in the following year, May 374, and after a raid upon the Alamanni, while at the fortress of Robert near Basel, he learned in late autumn that the Quadi and the Sarmatai had burst across the frontier. The emperor, with his passion for fortress building, had given orders for a garrison station to be erected on the left bank of the Danube, within the territory of the Quadi, while at the same time the youthful Marcellianus, through the influence of his father Maximin, repeat, through the influence of his father Maximinus, the ill-famed prefect of Illyricum, had succeeded the able general Aquitius as Magister Armorum. Gabinius, king of the Quadi, came to the Roman camp to pray that this violation of his rights might cease. 
the newly appointed general treacherously murders his guest, and at the news the barbarians flew to arms, poured across the Danube upon the unsuspecting farmers, and all but captured the daughter of Constantius, who was on her journey to meet Gratian, her future husband. Sarmatai and Quadi devastated Mosia and Pannonia. The Praetorian prefect Probus was stupefied into inactivity, and the Roman legionaries that feud between themselves were rooted in confusion. The only successful resistance was offered by the younger Theodosius, the future emperor, who compelled one of the invading Sarmatian hosts to sue for peace. Valentinian desired to march eastward forthwith, but was dissuaded by those who urged the hardships of a winter campaign and the danger of leaving Gaul while the leader of the Alemanni was still unsubdued. Both Romans and barbarians were, however, alike weary of the ceaseless struggle, and during the winter, Valentinian and Macrian concluded an enduring peace. In the late spring of 375, the emperor left Gaul. From June to August, he was at Carnuntum, endeavouring to restore order within the devastated province, and thence marched to Ansincum, crossed the Danube, and wasted the territory of the invading tribesmen. Autumn surprised him while still in the field. He retired to Siberia and took up his winter quarters at Bregesio. The Quadi, conscious of the hopelessness of further resistance, sent an embassy excusing their action and pleading that the Romans were in truth the aggressors. The emperor, passionately enraged at this freedom of speech, was seized in the paroxysm of his anger with an apoplectic fit and carried dying from the audience hall, 17th of November, 375. Highly complexioned, with a strong and muscular body, cast in a noble and majestic mould, his steel-blue eyes scanning men and things with a gaze of sinister intensity, the emperor stands before us as an imposing and stately figure. Yet his stern and forbidding nature awakes but little sympathy, and it is easy to do less than justice to the character and work of Valentinian. With a strong hand... Diocletian had endeavoured by his administrative system and by the enforcement of hereditary duties to weld together the Roman Empire which had been shattered by the successive catastrophes of the 3rd century. To Valentinian it seemed as though the same iron constraint could alone check the process of dissolution. If it were possible, he would make life for the provincials worth the living for then resistance to the invader would be the more resolute. He would protect them with forts and garrisons upon their frontiers, would lighten, if he dare, the weight of taxation, would accord them liberty of conscience and freedom for their varied faiths, and would, to the best of his power, appoint honest and capable men as his representatives. But a spirit of dissatisfaction and discontent amongst his subjects was not merely disloyalty, it was a menace to the empire, for it tended to weaken the solidarity of governors and governed. To remove an official for abusing his trust was in Valentinian's eyes to prejudice men's respect for the state. 
and thus the strain of brutality in his nature declared itself in his refusal to check stern measures or pitiless administration. To save the Roman world from disintegration, it must be cowed into unity. Without mercy to others, he never spared himself. As a restless and untiring leader, with no mean gifts of generalship and strategy, it was but natural that he should give preferment to his officers. Till contemporaries bitterly complained that never before had civilians been thus neglected or the army so highly privileged. It could indeed hardly be otherwise, for with every frontier threatened, it was the military captain who was indispensable. The emperor's efforts to suppress abuses were untiring. Simplicity characterised his court, and strict economy was practised. His laws in the Theodosian Code are a standing witness to his passion for reform. He regulated the corn supply and the transport of the grain by sea. He made less burdensome the collection of the taxes levied in kind on the provincials. He exerted himself to protect the curials and the members of municipal senates. He settled barbarians as colonists on lands which were passing out of cultivation. He endeavoured to put a stop to the debasement of the coinage. While in the administration of justice, he attempted to check the misuse of wealth and favour by insisting upon publicity of trial and by granting greater facilities for appeals. As a contemporary observes, Valentinian's one sore need was honest agents and upright administrators, and these he could not secure. Men only sought for power in order to abuse it. Had the emperor been served by more men of the stamp of Theodosius, the respect to posterity might have given place to admiration. Even as it was in later days, when men praised Theodoric, they compared him with two great emperors of the past, with Trajan and Valentinian. At the time of the emperor's death, Gratian was far distant at Trier, and there was a general fear that the fickle Gallic troops now encamped on the left bank of the Danube might claim to raise to the throne some candidate whom they themselves had chosen. Perhaps Sebastianus, a man by nature inactive, but high in the favour of the army. Merobordes, the general in command, was therefore recalled as though by order of Valentinian, on a pretext of fresh disturbances upon the Rhine. And after prolonged consultation, it was decided to summon the late emperor's four-year-old son, Valentinian. The boy's uncle covered post-haste the hundred Roman miles which lay between Brugicio and the country house of Murasincta, where the young prince was living with his mother Justina. Valentinian was carried back to the camp in a litter, and six days after his father's death was solemnly proclaimed Augustus. Gratian's kindly nature soon dispelled any fear that he would refuse to recognise this horrid election. The elder brother always showed towards the younger a father's care and affection. No partition of the West, however, took place at this time, and there could as yet be no question of the exercise of independent power by Valentinian II. Gratian ruled over all those provinces which had been subject to Valentinian I, and his infant colleague's name 
is not even mentioned in the constitutions before the year 379. Of the government of Gratian, however, we know but little. Its importance lies mainly in the fact that he was determined to be first and foremost an orthodox Christian emperor, and even refused to wear the robe or assume the title of Pontifex Maximus, probably 375. Meanwhile in the East, the fidelity of Pap grew suspect in the eyes of Rome. The unfavourable dispatches of Terentius, the murder of Catholicos Nursis, and the consecration of his successor by the king, without the customary appeal to Caesarea, Mazacar, led Valens to invite Pap to Tarsus, where he remained virtually a prisoner. Escaping to his own country, he fell a victim to Roman treachery, 375. Still, Rome and Persia negotiated, and at length, 376, Valens dispatched Victor and Arbiceus with an ultimatum. The emperor demanded that the fortresses which of right belonged to Saramaces should be evacuated by the beginning of 377. The claims of Rome were ignored, and Valens was planning at Hierapolis, July to August 377, a great campaign against Persia, when the news from Europe made it imperative to withdraw the Roman army of occupation from Armenia. For several years the European crisis engaged all the emperor's energies, and he was unable to interfere effectually in eastern affairs. The Huns had burst into Europe, had conquered the Alans, subjected the East Goths, Ostrogoths, and driven the West Goths, Visigoths, to crave admission within the territory of Rome. Athanaric and Fritigern had become leaders of two distinct parties among the West Goths. Athanaric, driven before the Huns, had lost much of his wealth, and as he was unable to support his followers, the greater number deserted their aged leader and joined Fritigern. It seems possible too that religious differences may have played their part in these dissensions. Athanaric may have stood at the head of those who were loyal to the old religion. Fritigern may have been willing to secure any advantage which the profession of the Christian faith might win from a devout emperor. Whether this be so or not, it was the tribesmen of Fritigern who appealed to Valens. It was no usual request. The settling of barbarians as colonists on Roman soil was of frequent occurrence, while the provision of barbarian recruits for the Roman army was a constant clause in the treaties of the 4th century. Valens and his ministers congratulated themselves that, without their seeking, so admiral an opportunity had presented itself of infusing new life and vigour into the northern provinces of the empire. The conditions for the reception of the Goths were that they should give up their arms and surrender many of their sons as hostages. The church historians add the stipulation that the Goths should adopt the Christian faith, but this would seem to have been only a pious hope and not a condition for the passage of the Danube. Although it was only natural that the Goths should affect to have assumed the religion of their new fellow countrymen, 
The conditions were stern enough, but the fate which threatened the barbarians at the hands of the Huns seemed even more unrelenting. The Goths accepted the terms, but for the Romans, the enforcement of their own requisitions was a work which demanded extraordinary tact and unremitting forethought. In face of this immense and sobering responsibility, which should have summoned forth all the energy and loyalty of which men were capable, the ministers of Valens, so far as we can see, did nothing. They left to chance alone the feeding of a multitude which none could number. It is not in their everyday peculations, nor in their habitual violence and oppression of the provincials, that the degradation of the bureaucracy of the empire is seen in its most hideous form. The weightiest count in the indictment is that when met by an extraordinary crisis which imperiled the existence of the empire itself, the agents of the state, with the danger in concrete form before their very eyes, failed to check their lust or bridle their avarice. Maximinus and Lupicinus kept the Goths upon the banks of the Danube in order to wring from them all they had to give, except their arms. Provisions failed utterly. For the body of a dog, a man would be bartered into slavery. As for the Goths who remained north of the river, Athanarich, remembering that he had declined to meet Valens on Roman soil, thought it idle to pray for admission within the empire and retired, it would seem, into the highlands of Transylvania. Now, however, that the imperial garrisons had been withdrawn to watch the passage of the followers of Fritigern, the Grutungi under Alatheus and Saphrax crossed the Danube unmolested, although leave to cross the frontier had previously been refused them. Meanwhile, Fritigern slowly advanced on Marcianople, ready if need be to join his compatriots, who were now encamped on the south bank of the river. Still, the Goths took no hostile step, but their exclusion from Marcianople led to a brawl with Roman soldiers outside the walls. Within the city, the news reached Lupicinus, who was entertaining Alavio and Fritigern to a feast. Orders were hurriedly given for the massacre of the Gothic guardsmen who had accompanied their leaders. Fritigern, at the head of his men, fought his way back to camp, while Alavio seems to have fallen in the fray, for we hear of him no more. The peace was at an end. Nine miles from Marcianople, Lupicinus was repulsed with loss. The criminal folly of the authorities of Hadrianople forced into rebellion the loyal Gothic auxiliaries who were stationed in the town. Barbarians bartered as slaves rejoined their comrades, while labourers from the imperial gold mines played their part in spreading havoc through Thrace. Thus at last the Goths took their revenge, and only the walls of cities could resist their onset. From Asia, Valens dispatched Profetorus and Trajan to the province, and they at length succeeded in driving back the barbarian host beyond the Balkans. The Roman army occupied the passes. Gratian had sent reinforcements from the west under Frigeridus and Richoma and the latter was associated with the generals of Valens. The barbarians, drawing together their scattered bands, 
formed a huge wagon lager, Carago, at a spot called Ad Salices, not far from Tomai. The Romans were still much inferior in numbers and anxiously awaited an opportunity to pour down upon the enemy while on the march. For some time, however, the Goths made no move. When at length they attempted to seize the higher ground, the battle began. The Roman left wing was broken and the legionaries were forced to retreat, but neither side gained any decisive advantage. The Goths remained for seven days longer within the shelter of their camp, while the Romans drove other troops of barbarians to the north of the mountain chain. Early autumn 377. At this time Richoma returned in order to secure further help from Gratian, while Saturninus arrived from Asia with the rank of Magister Equitum, in command, it would seem, of reinforcements. But the tide of fortune which had favoured the Romans during the previous months now ebbed. The Goths, despairing of breaking the cordon or piercing the Balkan passes by promises of unlimited booty, won over hordes of Huns and Alans to their side. Saturninus found that he could hold his position no longer and was thus forced to retire on the Rodope chain, save for a defeat at Debaltus near the sea coast, he successfully masked his retreat, while Frigeridus, who was stationed in the neighbourhood of Baroa, fell back before the enemy upon Illyricum, where he captured the barbarian leader, Phanobius, and defeated the Typhali. As in Valentinian's day, the captives were settled in the depopulated districts of Italy. The help, however, which was expected from the west, was long delayed. In February 378, the Lentienses chanced to hear from one of their fellow tribesmen, who was serving in the Roman army, that Gratian had been summoned to the east. Collecting allies from the neighbouring clans, they burst across the border some 40,000 strong. Panagyris said 70,000. Gratian was forced to recall the troops who had already marched into Pannonia and in command of these, as well as of his Gallic legionaries, he placed Nanienus and the Frankish king Malabordes. At the Battle of Argentaria, near Colmar in Alsace, Priarius, the barbarian king, was slain, and with him, it is said, more than 30,000 of the enemy. According to the Roman estimate, only some 5,000 escaped through the dense forests, into the shelter of the hills. Gratian in person then crossed the Rhine and after laborious operations among the mountains starved the fugitives into surrender. By the terms of peace they were bound to furnish recruits for the Roman army. The result of the campaign was a very real triumph for the youthful emperor of the West. Meanwhile Sebastian appointed in the east to succeed Trajan in the command of the infantry was raising and training a small force of picked men, with which to begin operations in the spring. In April 378, Valens left Antioch for the capital, at the head of reinforcements drawn from Asia. He arrived on the 30th of May. The Goths now held the ship Pass, and were stationed both north and south of the Balkans, 
at Nicopolis and Baroa. Sebastian had successfully freed the country round Hadrianople from plundering bands, and Fritigern, concentrating the Gothic forces, had withdrawn north to Cabile. At the end of June, Valens advanced with his army from Melanthius, which lay some 15 miles west of Constantinople. Against the advice of Sebastian, the emperor determined upon an immediate march in order to reflect a junction with the forces of his nephew, who was now advancing by Lauriacum and Sirmium. The eastern army entered the Maritza Pass, but at the same time, Fritigern would seem to have dispatched some Goths southwards. These were sighted by the Roman scouts, and in fear that the passage should be blocked behind him and his supplies cut off, the emperor retreated towards Hadrianople. Fritigern himself, meanwhile, marched south over the pass of Bujuk Durbant in the direction of Nike, as though he would intercept communication between Valens and his capital. Two alternative courses were now open to the emperor. He might take up a strong position at Hadrianople and await the army of the west. This was Gratian's council brought by Richemer, who reached the camp on the 7th of August. Or he might at once engage the enemy. Valens adopted the latter alternative. It would seem that he underestimated the number of the Goths, and it is possible that he desired to show that he too could win victories in his own strength, as well as the Western Emperor. Sebastian, who had, at his own request, left the service of Gratian for that of Valens, may have sought to rob his former master of any further laurels. At dawn on the following morning, the 9th of August, the advance began. When, about midday, the armies came in sight of each other, probably near the modern Demeranlesia, Fritigern, in order to gain time, entered into negotiations. But on the arrival of his cavalry, he felt sure of victory and struck the first blow. We cannot reconstruct the battle. Valens, Trajan and Sebastian all fell, and with them two-thirds of the Roman army. In the open country, no resistance could be offered to the victorious barbarians, but they were beaten back from the walls of Hadrianople, and a troop of Saracen horsemen repelled them from the capital. Victor bore the news of the appalling catastrophe to Gratian. In the face of hostile criticism, Valentinian had chosen Valens as his co-Augustus, intending that he should carry out in the east the same policy which he himself had planned for the west. His judgment was not at fault, for in the sphere of religion alone did the two emperors pursue different ends. Like an orderly, with unfailing loyalty, Valens obeyed his brother's instructions. He too strengthened the frontier with fortresses and lightened the burden of taxation, while under his care magnificent public buildings rose throughout the eastern provinces. But Valentinian's masterful decision of character was alien to Valens. His was a weaker nature, which under adversity easily yielded to despair. Severity, anxiously assumed, tended towards ferocity, and a consciousness of insecurity 
rendered him tyrannical when his life or throne was threatened. His subjects could neither forget nor forgive the horrible excuses which marked the suppression of the rebellion of Procopius or of the conspiracy of Theodorus. He was hated by the Orthodox as an Arian heretic and by the pagans as a Christian zealot, while it was upon the emperor that men laid the responsibility for the overwhelming disaster of Hadrianople. Thus there were few to judge him with impartial justice, and it is probable that even later historians have been unduly influenced by the invectives of his enemies. His imperious brother had made of an excellent civil servant an emperor who was no match for the crisis which he was fated to meet. On the news of the defeat at Hadrianople, Gratian at once turned to the general, who had shown such brilliant promise a few years before, in the defence of Moesia. The young Theodosius was recalled from his retirement in Spain and put in command of the Roman troops in Thrace. Here, it would appear, he was victorious over the Sarmatians and at Sirmium in the month of January 379, probably 19th of January 379. Gratian created him co-Augustus. It was only after long hesitation that Theodosius accepted the heavy task of restoring order in the eastern provinces. But the decision once taken there was no delay. Before the emperors parted company, their joint forces seemed to have defeated the Goths. Gratian then relinquished some of his troops in favour of Theodosius and himself started with all speed for Gaul, where Franks and Vandals had crossed the Rhine. After defeating the invaders, Gratian went into winter quarters at Trier. Theodosius was left to rule the eastern prefecture, while it must perhaps remain a doubtful question whether eastern Illyricum was not also included within his jurisdiction. The course of events which led up to the final subjection of the Gothic invaders by Theodosius is for us a lost chapter in the story of East Rome. Some few disconnected fragments can, it is true, be recovered, but their setting is too often conjectural. Many have been the attempts to unravel the confused tangle of incidents which Zosimus offers in the place of an ordered history. But however the ingenuity of critics may amaze us, it rarely convinces. Even so bold a statement as that of the following paragraphs is, it must be confessed, in large measure, but a hypothetical reconstruction. A pestilence had broken out amongst the barbarians besieging Thessalonica, and plague and famine drove them from the walls. The city could therefore be occupied without difficulty by Theodosius, who chose it for his base of operations. Its natural position made it an admirable centre. From it led the high roads towards the north to the Danube, and towards the east to Constantinople. Its splendid harbour offered shelter to merchant ships from Asia and Egypt, and thus the army's stores and provisions could not be intercepted by the Goths, while from this point military operations could be undertaken alike in Thrace and Illyricum. The first task to which Theodosius directed his commanding energy was the restoration of discipline 
among his disorganised troops. No longer did the emperor hold himself aloof, an unapproachable being hedged about with awe and majesty. The conception, which had, since Diocletian, become a court tradition, gave place to the liberality and friendliness of a captain in the midst of his men. Early in June, Theodosius reached Thessalonica and dispatched Moderes, a barbarian of royal blood, to sweep the Goths from Thrace. Falling upon the unsuspecting foe, the Romans massacred a host of marauders laden with the booty of the provinces. The legionaries recovered confidence in themselves, and the main body of the invaders was driven northwards. The emperor himself, with Thessalonica secured and garrisoned, marched north towards the Danube to Scupai, Uscub, 6th of July, 379, and Vicus Augusti, 2nd of August. From the first he was determined to win the victory, if it were possible, rather by conciliation than armed force. It would seem probable that even in the year 379, he was enrolling Goths among his troops and converting bands of pillagers into Roman subjects. But in his winter quarters at Thessalonica, the emperor was struck down by disease and for long his life hung in the balance. February 380. He prepared himself for his end by baptism, the magical sacrament which obliterated all sin and was therefore postponed till the hour when life itself was ebbing. Military action was paralysed, and the fruits of the previous year's campaign were lost. The Goths took fresh courage. Fritigern led one host into Thessaly, Epirus and Acacia and Achai. Another under Alatheus and Saphrax devastated Pannonia, while Nicopolis was lost to the Romans. Gratian hastened perforce to the help of his disabled colleague. Bauto and Arbogast were dispatched to check the Goths in the north, and in the summer Gratian himself marched to Sirmium, where he concluded a truce with the barbarians, under which the Romans were to supply provisions, while the Goths furnished recruits for the army. It is probable that Gratian and Theodosius met in conference at Sirmium in September. The danger in the south was averted by the death of Fritigern. Without a leader, the Gothic host turned once more southwards. In the autumn, Theodosius was back in Thessalonica, and in November he entered Constantinople in triumph. This fact of itself must signify that the immediate peril was past. End of section 27